It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who like to show off their flu shot selfies. Yeah. So if you've got flu shot selfies, get on Twitter and show us. Show us your band aids. Don't throw away your shot at showing us your selfie. <laughs> Don't throw away the Band-Aid covering your shot until you've taken a photo and shown us. Or, you know, just put another Band-Aid on. It's okay. None, none of the anti-vaxxers think that uh, you actually got your flu shot anyway. They think you're faking it. So just, you can, it doesn't matter if it was really the real Band-Aid or not. Just put one on. Take a photo. <laughs> I'm Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician here at Blank Trims Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. I was very tardy getting my 16-year-old his flu shot this year. I even hey. wrote a little blog post about it <laughs> on voicesforvaccines.org. I didn't get him his flu shot until the beginning of December, which oh is my. super late for us. Right. Um, and, you know, par- yeah. part of it is it's really what they talk about as far as adolescence and immunization, mm-hmm. just that it is really hard to get kids in to do things like that. Yes. You know, eating family meals is hard to schedule. Getting the flu shot is super hard to schedule. So did you get it done at your child's clinic then, or did you get it done somewhere else like at a pharmacy? At Target. Yeah, Okay. So that is, that makes it easier though. Cause mm-hmm. we always, I always used to take the kids into just our clinic, uh, to their doctor and get it done. But that's a, that's a haul. Like that's a lot more work than, a Hey, work. here's a, here's a target. Here's a CVS. Here's, you know, we can get this done. And actually if right. I think if I have had to reshift my mindset to be like, no, this is really easy to get done. They're old enough. They don't mm-hmm. need, uh, at least in our I don't know if it's a state guideline or or if it's a clinic guideline, but you know, over the age of I believe seven, you can just get your child the flu shot anywhere without a prescription. So mm-hmm. under that, the the doctor's office usually sends a prescription to the pharmacy if you have to get it outside of the clinic. But we right. prefer in general if you can come to the clinic to your regular doctor to get it. That's good because that helps the doctor know how many flu shots to get any given year if everybody's getting them outside mm-hmm. then that, that's just harder to to track but if it is easier to get your child your flu shot their flu shot uh outside and get it done when it's convenient and you get a five dollar target card and that's an incentive for your teen mm-hmm. great i say <laughs> go to it especially when you ask your teenager hey when are you available to get your flu shot and he says mm-hmm. how about 10 o'clock and, and then you <laughs> say you mean 10 o'clock PM and he says yeah <laughs> no there's, there's not even the 24 hour Walgreens will do that no <laughs> 10 o'clock okay <laughs> well let's head on over to our around the webs mm-hmm. uh, so I was going to talk about the recent attempt to rebrand anti-vaxxers that has been going around getting a lot of attention on Twitter and Facebook. So there is a post and I got to pull up the page here um, that was, I believe, posted to multiple social media platforms. It was uh, by a group that I even hesitate to kind of repeat the name, but the group is called Crazy Mothers. I, I don't love repeating that name, but there you go. Uh, and they said in their graphic, Dear Media, please retire the use of the term anti-vaxxer. Uh, it is derogatory, inflammatory, and marginalizes both women and their experiences. It is dismissively simplistic, highly offensive, and largely false. We politely request that you refer to us as vaccine risk aware. Thank you. And Twitter was having nothing uh, they, they were they were not having this. Uh, when, if you take a look at the ratio on that, it's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. It, it, trying to rebrand themselves. So let me let me start by saying something that we say often on this show that we, uh, I certainly, and I think we're on the same page when we talk about delineating people who are vaccine hesitant or even refuse right, vaccines right. for themselves or their family. Uh, 
as something that happens and is not really okay. It's it's dangerous to a child to not be able to get their vaccines if they don't have a contraindication. But psychologically speaking, knowing how people work, knowing how emotional things that people find out or misinformation works is somewhat, at least you can figure out why that decision was made, even if that decision wasn't made with the best facts. That's one group of people. When I talk about anti-vaxxers, I talk about the people that are out deliberately spreading misinformation about vaccines, people who believe the vaccines on balance are far more dangerous than they are beneficial, and then try to get other people to believe that. So when I think of anti-vaxxer as shorthand for anti-vaccine activist, and that's a far cry from a person who is nervous or hesitant about immunizing, the kind of person that I see in my clinic and try to talk to and educate on a regular basis. They have always wanted to rebrand themselves because nobody really thinks, you know, po um, um, popular opinion-wise, vaccines are very popular. People like vaccines. People like not getting things like polio and measles and meningitis. Yes. So being seen as anti as an anti-vaxxer even though clearly the core of what you believe is the vaccines are bad which by definition should make you an anti-vaxxer there's this desire to rebrand and, and be called anything else anything positive uh and but to, we're, we're we're not really having it because it's kind of core to what they believe and then again here to try to co-opt um, say things like it's it's marginalizing of women and their experiences, um, things like that. It, it's not accurate. Women like Del Big Tree and RFK Jr. Yes, all those, all the, <laughs> yeah, and Wakefield. Yes. So yeah, how what did you think when you read this? Well, so I don't really like to interact with folks like that on Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, partially because when you do interact, you kind of give them more attention. Sure. And yeah. I think that that is something, particularly with my Voices for Vaccines account, that I need to be cautious about. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I kind of just let it go. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, because vaccines are so popular, and they recognize that, that they don't mm -hmm. want to be seen as anti-vaccine. But they genuinely and truly are against vaccines. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, there are people who, again, are hesitant. And you say, you know, which vaccines would you give? And they mm -hmm. can maybe come, you know, come up with some. Like, I don't know, I think probably a tetanus shot's a good idea. You know what I right, mean? Right. That, that, they, that they're considering it, but th that they've got some concerns about vaccines. But when you've got people who, you know, are saying boldly things that there's no safety testing done and, and all this stuff, they are opponents of immunization. And um, they really... You know, one of the things that I, I've noticed is that they get concerned when public health organizations call for increasing immunization rates that, for example, they don't like that. Right. Um, so it's really it's it's really kind of a difficult topic to deal with because, you know, obviously we don't we want we don't want to inflame them by calling them things that they aren't. But honestly, anti-vaccine is the most uh, concise and mm -hmm. accurate uh, name for them. Yeah, I agree. Um, it was then picked up by apparently still a presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, yeah. who tweeted a series of tweets just over the last couple of days. First of all, saying that, yes, anti-vaxxer, I, I don't have the tweets in front of me, but that anti-vaxxer is not an appropriate term. And then detailing how she would um, make a new independent commission to uh investigate vaccine safety even though we have multiple committees and and organizations that oversee <laughs> vaccine safety um she said she would put on this committee um luke montagnier who i'm probably not pronouncing correctly who is uh you know one of yeah. these people that is in the past a nobel laureate but has since then adopted more alternative views that are less evidence-based and coincidentally is on the advisory council for RFK Jr.'s um, Children's Health Defense anti-vaccine organization. So I can only speculate 
that he may be having a hand in uh, writing some of this policy that Marianne Williamson has now decided is part of her platform. And and you have to imagine that her campaign is not going gangbusters right now, so she <laughs> might have climbed aboard this train to get some publicity. Yeah, to get the measles vote. I think that a lot of politicians and lawmakers mistake the vocal prominence of the anti-vaccine voice with mm-hmm. how popular it is. Right, number of people. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of, yeah, it's a little inversely proportional. And I think that social media has helped people who are anti-vaccine find other people who are anti-vaccine and sort of emboldened them and made them louder. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there there might be some of that going on with Marianne Williams. I don't want to get too much into the politics about it, but I don't necessarily trust her intentions uh, <laughs> no. in that conversation. She also got into it with NBC News reporter Brandy Zadrozny, who is a really pretty well-respected reporter. Mm-hmm. She's She um, actually just did a piece about how anti-vaxxers have sort of because of their muted effect on social media, they've now started becoming more harassing in Uh real-life events. Uh, Dr. Eve Kreef in New York State, who Uh had her clinic office picketed by anti-vaccine people who are upset that she testified at some hearing in New York. Uh, So they kind of stood outside and harassed her patients as they came in. Um, so Brandy and Marianne got into it a little bit uh, with that. Mm-hmm. And, and I really have to say, I think at, at the end, a lot of this comes from people not having facts. And then, you know, people like non-women, Del Bigtree and RFK Jr. and Andrew Wakefield taking advantage of a lot of people who don't have the correct information and haven't found the correct sources of understanding why vaccines are safe and (laughs) why we need them all right i just want to swing through a quick around the web um and actually it's more of an around the world thing Mm -hmm. but it's but it's certainly you've certainly seen it online a lot and that is that last time i read there were 63 people in samoa who were killed by measles yeah and um, as part of that, there's sort of a lot of misinformation that's gone around. Um, one is about vitamin A supplementation replacing vaccines. Mm-hmm. Another is that the vaccine doesn't work because it's the wrong genotype. And then another is that um, the measles virus is mutating and so the the vaccine also doesn't work so those three things are untrue um i wrote about it in the last this week in vaccine hesitancy so i'm not gonna sort of debunk it piece by piece too much here but you know vitamin a supplementation is in it in i i don't know You've never had a, a measles case in your career, have you? No, I have not. But it is recognized in medical texts as a standard of care in certain situations with measles. This isn't new information mm-hmm. that anti-vaxxers came up with. Uh, it's, it's, it's recognized. It's particularly important in areas where there is a true vitamin A deficiency in the population or in mm-hmm. the patient. Uh, it's absolutely not a replacement for... Um, immunization and we know plenty well that even in areas where vitamin A deficiency is not prevalent we still have deaths from measles we see it in the United States Mm -hmm. we get deaths from time to time from measles Um, still have a death rate in the United States about one per 1,000 cases right even children who go into the ICU and get vitamin A supplementation intravenously can still be killed by measles Mm -hmm. but you know the the other one too is that you know this confusion about the genotype um that the measles the portion of the the virus that the measles vaccine trains the body to recognize is the serotype there's only one serotype of measles and that's sort of the the outside bit so it doesn't matter how many genotypes of measles and measles is really unlikely to develop a resistance to the vaccine or to mutate a resistance 
just because of how long it's been stable. So, I mean, those are just three pieces of misinformation that anytime there's a measles outbreak, those three pieces of misinformation bubble to the surface. Mm -hmm. And so this is really interesting to me. I'm wondering what you think about this, because now I've noticed this in Minnesota, in Washington State, in New York State, and now in Samoa, that the exact same three pieces of misinformation are floated and sometimes pretty, I shouldn't say even floated, they're sort of shoved down people's throats aggressively. Mm -hmm. And so why is it that this misinformation occurs alongside a measles outbreak instead of, oh, shoot, I guess we should vaccinate? It is because the anti-vaccine movement is unable to self-reflect on the actual consequences that they do that include taking of lives. People die when people don't get immunized and spreading of misinformation causes those deaths. Even if the measles dangers that the anti-vaccine movement, or sorry, even if the vaccine dangers that the anti-vaccine movement believed to be true, even if that was the case, that doesn't take away from the fact that kids are dying from lack of immunization. They have to do the flip side of that coin. They have to be able to say, no, no, not only are vaccines bad, but not vaccinating bad things that happen are not from not vaccinating because vaccines are bad. They're anti-vaccine as we've discussed. So there is the most scientifically implausible ways that they use to dig out of even the most tragic situations. This is one of those situations where there is a clear line between like spread vaccine misinformation, make people afraid of the vaccine, children die. And everybody who's contributing to trying to uh, get people in Samoa or anywhere to not immunize, and there's measles outbreaks, there's um, deaths all over the world from measles, misinformation is the spread of misinformation is contributing to that and that's just not something that the anti-vaccine movement can accept so they make up whatever they have to that comes from some little grain of thing that they read misinterpreted or decided that is you know true about something false about how doctors work or what whatever to make it so that these deaths they can like kind of disavow them and it's disgusting part of this spread of misinformation was rfk jr himself visiting samoa Mm -hmm. so this uh decrease in immunization rates in samoa started last year it started with an extremely tragic event in which um two two children died because um two nurses gave vaccines where they had mixed in a muscle relaxant into it instead of the usual diluent into it and they were charged with manslaughter they are in prison but the the fear of that decreased immunization rates in those younger age groups and anti-vaccine groups were there to fan that flame and rfk jr was one of those people who visited there this summer uh, I believe he met with the prime minister. We don't know exactly what they talked about, but he certainly posed with anti-vaccine advocates in Samoa. And then lo and behold, we have low immunization. They have low immunization rates and measles hits and tragedy happens. On that note, I just want to tell Nathan a little bit about the interview I did. It was just me and Shelly Allen who talked last week about her daughter, Maddie, and her experience with influenza. It's a pretty dramatic story. Maddie was in the hospital for 93 days. And so I had her sit down and sort of lay out the whole story. And we kind of got talking. She's a she's a wonderful relayer of information. And so we're going to combat all that misinformation we were just talking about. And be the anti-measles, anti-influenza <laughs> podcast that will give you information about what happens when kids get sick. And so on the other side of the break, I will have Families Fighting Flu's Shelly Allen. I can't wait to listen. Hello, it's 
Karen back without Nathan because he can't find a headset today. And I am joined by a um, friend of our podcast, Shelly Allen, who is the current president of Families Fighting Flu and the mother of uh, flu survivor, Maddie. And we're, we've got her here today to talk about her family's journey with flu and also her personal journey with the organization Families Fighting Flu. So welcome, Shelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I knew you needed to be on this podcast when I met you in Hawaii. So thank you for coming. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. And, um, you know, I just feel that every time I can tell Maddie's story, because obviously that's the story I know, but we have so many other stories that hopefully it just, you know, it influences or, you know, helps one person. And if it helps one, I'm, I'm hoping it helps more, but if it helps one person, you know, then it's done its job. Right. And of course, we want to say that if you haven't gotten your flu shot this year yet, there is still plenty of time. Flu shots have become like lattes. There are a whole bunch of different kinds you can get. Not pumpkin spice yet. But there are. I have hope. I have hope. (laughs) But there are lots of kinds of flu shots. So no excuses. Go out and get your flu shot. So let's talk about Maddie. Maddie was an athlete and she was in seventh grade, right? That is correct. Um, she had just finished up um, her basketball season, was going into soccer season. Um, just a normal, you know, 12 year old that was active in school, active in sports, very social, um, very family oriented and, um, you know, she was just, she was just truly a blessing, you know. She was a pretty good athlete. I mean, she was active, but she did have exercise-induced asthma, right? She did. So probably um, about three years prior to her becoming ill, um, we just really noticed that she struggled um, when she played soccer, which, you know, obviously soccer is outside. Um, She didn't struggle as much when she played an indoor sport, but we noticed definitely on the outside sports, um, she just struggled a little bit more with her breathing, and it just wasn't um a really good flow of breathing you know it just was a struggle for her she was um you know because we live in the midwest you know there was a lot of times we were surrounded by you know cornfields or whatever playing and stuff so we contributed that to part of it and um we actually saw her pediatrician and he was able to diagnose her it was very controlled Um, She took some allergy medicine, and then she had a rescue inhaler, but that's it. Right. So she wasn't what you would have thought of as a super sick kid. I mean, certainly lots of kids have exercise-induced asthma. No, not at all. Um, You know, the only thing you know, illness wise, she would get strep throat a couple times a year, but that's just sort of normal when you go to school and around everybody. And um, other than that, that was the only thing that she had. What was your first inkling that something wasn't right with Maddie? So actually, um, she had went that evening, um, she had went to a friend's birthday party, and she was gonna go home with her best friend and spend the night. And I mean, Madison never, and sometimes you'll hear me say Maddie, sometimes Madison, unfortunately, as mom, she's Madison, but (laughs) so she was going to go home and spend the night with her best friend and they were going to, you know, hang out in the hot tub, you know, do fun things. And she texts me probably about an hour after she got to the party and said, you know, I really think I need to come home. I'm just not feeling well. Right. And that was just sort of a key that I'm like, you know, she must really be ill or not feeling the greatest because normally nothing ever kept her down. She just kept going. And then how did you know that she was really, really sick? So that night she came home. um, She and I noticed like she had a really harsh cough, um, which she had the cough before she had went to the party, but it wasn't, it didn't seem as, um, as bad and once she got home the cough was really it was a really deep cough I almost say it was like a smoker's cough you know Mm -hmm. um and then um 
she had a fever and then she asked me she which you know she's 12 years old she she doesn't you know she doesn't ask this question very often but you know she was like mom I think you really need to sleep in my bedroom and that was that was the key for me that you know something really isn't right and um so, you know, I slept throughout the night with her. I kept feeling her, kept giving her Tylenol and ibuprofen um, just to try to break the fever. But she was like really burning up, you mm-hmm. know, like that, you know, sort of like when you touch them, you're just like, oh, my yeah. goodness, she's got a high fever. And, the, you know, the high fever is really the sudden high fever I know is really one of the hallmarks of influenza. Um can you remind me again, what year was this when she got sick? So this was 2011. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you say that about the fever. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I mean, she was 12 years old. So, you know, I had been a mom for 12 years, you know, and I'd been to the pediatrician several times, you know, for her annual checkup and stuff like that. But, you know, the bad part is, is that as a mom, I just thought it was the, you know, flu is the flu and you just get over it. You, you, you know, are feeling yucky for a while and then, then you're better. I didn't realize the fevers were such a huge indicator of how serious it can be. Right. Cause your body is fighting so hard right? that it, it ramps up the fever to really try to, to work that off. She had the high fever, but then I know she kind of, it looked like she was going to be feeling better yeah. before things got really bad. Yeah. So on Saturday morning, she woke up and she wasn't, I mean, obviously she wasn't her normal self, but she was definitely, it, it, you know, the fever, we had broke the fever. It wasn't as high. Um, she wasn't as warm to touch. Um, the cough, um, she still had the cough, but it didn't seem as bad as it did the night before. Um, she had energy to, you know, get up and have breakfast. She kept all of our, you know, she never stopped eating. She, she ate the whole time and drank the whole time. So those were not indicators of, you know, being ill or anything, but, um, we sort of had our day and I had actually taken her over to my parents' house and cause I had to do a couple things for my dad and she went with me. Um, you know, she did fine on Saturday, Saturday night, she didn't ask for me to sleep in bed with her or sleep in her room. So I was like, okay, we're, you know, it's the flu. We've gotten over it. You know, we're, we're good. And, um, then Sunday, that is the day that, um, it actually just started her health started declining. It was Monday morning. Um, my husband was home. Um, he actually, I said, you know, go ahead and go to Walmart, get our stuff for the day or for the week. And I said, as soon as the pediatrician's office opens up, we'll go straight in. And, um, unfortunately, like he went, he went and did his, um, shopping or shopping for us. And we, we live very close to our hospital in Walmart. So we're, you know, we're in a town of 19,000 people. It takes us 10 minutes to get across town. So we're very close. And, um, I, I actually asked Madison, I said, well, let's take a shot. Let's get you in the shower and maybe that'll make you feel better. You know, she hadn't really showered all weekend. And so when I put her in the shower, she asked me if I could help her. And I said, yes. And so, you know, we got our shower done and I closed the curtain to go get a towel. And when I opened the ta- the curtain back up, that is when um, I knew that we were in, we were really in bad shape. Um, her lips were already turning like a bluish gray color. And her eyes were like really sunken and the bags were, um, her, her, her color was just the most horrifying thing I'd ever seen. And, um, I got her out of the shower and sat her on her bed. And, and because at that time she she was, 
she was becoming weaker and weaker. Um, so she still could walk, but she needed help. She needed somebody to lean on. And I remember sitting her on her bed and saying, I will be right back. And I went into the other room because I didn't want to scare her. And I called my husband and my husband was like, well, I'm in the checkout. And I, I just said to him, I said, you have to leave it. We have to get to the hospital now. And he said, but I'm checking out. And I said, leave it. And he did. And he got home within minutes. And I mean, within five minutes, we, he was home and we were at the hospital. So um, we walked into the hospital again. She walked in with us or with me. Um, but then that's when um, we knew something was going on because they automatically got her straight back and checked her vitals. You and didn't have to sit with the triage nurse no. and think about it. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, as soon as we walked in, they were like, come right back. And right. Um, and that's they, what people really need to know about ERs is when you're sitting there for a long time, that's because someone very, very, very sick had to go straight back. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. And uh, we went straight back and the first thing they did, obviously her oxygen level. And before this, I didn't even, you know, I'm not in the medical field, so I don't know a lot of this information. I didn't even, I was like, what is her oxygen level? I don't understand all this, you know? And it was um, quite low. And so they had automatically started her on oxygen. And then that's when doctors came in, they started test, you know, taking lab work. Um, they were able to tell us that she had double pneumonia. Oh my gosh. Um, however, but that was pretty much it. And her oxygen level was still, you know, getting lower and lower with full, the full oxygen that they could do in the ER. Um, again, I didn't know that you could... In the ER, they can only do a certain amount where they have to at least meet you in the hospital, you know, on the floor or transfer you. And um, we were on the highest amount of oxygen that she could possibly get in the ER. Right. So then they brought her up to ICU? Actually, um, we chose because our hospital is a smaller hospital. Um, I'm very fortunate. My mother is in the medical field, um, you know, as uh, an accountant. But um, I called her and she's like, you know, I think we need to get her over to a bigger hospital. So we actually had her uh, transferred to St. John's Hospital in Springfield, which is um, a smaller children's hospital. Right. And um, was that like an ambulance ride or a medevac ride? Or No, it was. It was an ambulance ride. Um, my husband went with her just because, you know, really at that point we knew she had pneumonia, but we didn't know, we didn't know the, how serious it was, you know, because at that time they still had not told us that she had the flu. Um, we just knew she had pneumonia. Well, my grandmother's had pneumonia before, you know, like I was like, okay, she'll be in the hospital for a while and then we'll come home. So I actually went home to pack some stuff for us and my husband rode over in the ambulance with her and my mom met him at the hospital. And I remember the last thing I said, I mean, Madison was coherent. She was talking to us, um, you know, still very puny, you know, color wise and stuff like that. But she, she was alert and she was talking. And I just remember saying to my husband, I said, now make sure you don't leave her because she's never been in a hospital. She's never been in a hospital setting. So oh, that's such a mom concern to have. <laughs> like, I don't want her to worry or be scared. Stay with her. Yes. And yeah. um, so my mom, I'm very fortunate. Again, my mom works in Springfield. My, and I said to my mom, I'm like, you know, could you just go ahead and meet them over there? I'm like, I'm sending Steve, which is my husband. But I said, you know, it's a girl, you know, he, he, he may not stay with her. So just go with her and stuff. And so my mom did. And it took me probably about 45 minutes to get to the hospital. And when I did, um, I actually found my husband and my mother in the waiting room in the ICU. Oh, that had to have been so scary for you. Well, at first it wasn't scary. It was more, I was mad because sure. what was the last thing I said? Right. Don't leave Maddie. And 
here both of them are sitting in the waiting room. And then I, after, you know, I got through the anger, just a sec, you know, a brief second, I realized something seriously was going wrong because my husband, who never sheds a tear or, you know, or anything, I could tell that he had been crying. Um, so what was going on with Maddie at that time? Um, so shortly after that, um, right after that, um, after, you know, I was like, what is going on? I don't believe my mother or my husband really knew exactly what's going on. And she's like, we've got to wait for the doctor. And the doctor came in and my mother said, this is Maddie's mom. And at that point she said she was already in respiratory distress and that they had already um, placed her on the CPAP. However, she was fighting it because I don't know, you know, the CPAP, you know, is a very um, traumatic thing. Um, you know, they're forcing air into you. And, it, and um, so, of course, she was fighting it because she was alert. And so they said, we really need her to calm down and, and try to allow the CPAP to do its job. So I, I said, well, can I go in and see her? And she said, most definitely. And she said, if not, if this doesn't work, the next step is we'll have to intubate her. And uh, so I walked into her room, of course, you know, she was crying and upset. And um, so I tried talking her, you know, calming her down. I got her calmed down for most part where she was allowing the machine to, you know, put the air, try to put the air in her. But unfortunately, it just, it wasn't working. Right, just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. So how long was did they try that CPAP method for so they only did it for about 20 minutes after I got there so probably a good 30 maybe 40 minutes and then what was the next step um, the next step was the doctor came in and said um, we are gonna have to intubate her because her lungs are just they're just not working the way they should be so it's still that time we only we still only knew that she had pneumonia. We still had not gotten any results back saying that she was had influenza or anything else. It was just pneumonia. So again, a person that, you know, myself, I've not been in the hospital a lot other than to, you know, have her. I was just like, how does pneumonia do this to a young child? Right. And um, so I actually had to have the conversation with her to let her know that they were actually going to put her to sleep so that they could and explain what intubation was. Because, again, I didn't know. I just was, you know, I was just winging it really honestly at that point. And I just told her that they were going to put her to sleep and that they need to give her body some strong medicine and that she would eventually, you know, in a, you know, a little bit of time, she would wake up. And um, as, of course, it's a sterile procedure. So, you know, I had to leave the room and everything. And I remember, you know, of course, I'm trying to be strong and, um, you know, the tears just rolled down my face and stuff. And I remember hearing a very faint sound and it was her saying mom. And when I turned around before I exited the room, um, she had put her hands up in a heart shape. Oh, and that was actually the last time I talked to her, saw her eyes for almost five weeks. Oh, that's amazing just yeah heartbreaking yeah oh so I, I know things actually got worse from there because exactly. I've heard your story um and obviously you just told everyone that she was um you know not available for five weeks to you I mean mm -hmm. not her eyes or her voice right 
um, she actually, at that point, um, I, I come from a very big family, um, both on my mother's side and my father's side, and we're very um, family-oriented. I mean, we're a very close family. And so by that time, um, you know, my family was coming in um, just to sit in the waiting room with us because we couldn't even be in the room most of the time because at this point, um, shortly after that, we found out that her kidneys had completely shut down. So her kidneys weren't working and her lungs were not working pretty much. Um, then about a couple hours later, they had to move her from the regular ventilator to the oscillator where it shakes the body. Um, again, very traumatizing as parents, you know, um, to see your child. Basically, the body is ice cold and you know, and it's just being shaken to, you know, keep it, you know, breathe for itself, you know, the, on the machine and stuff. So um, then about, it was probably about eight o'clock that night. So, you know, our journey, you know, at the hospital started about seven o'clock that morning. And by eight o'clock that night, the doctor um, who actually was off shift by that time, but stayed with us the whole time because she, you know, she wanted, she wanted to, you know, help as much as she could. Um, she came in and um, she pulled us aside into another room and she told us at this point that there was nothing more that they could do there at that hospital for Maddie. Um, that they had called in Children's Hospital from St. Louis and they were going to be coming to the hospital to evaluate her. Um, at that point, we still didn't know if they would be able to take her, um, but they were at least coming to evaluate. So that had to have been quite alarming that you were already at your second hospital of the day mm -hmm. and uh, looking at bringing a third hospital in. Correct. Yeah. And just the fact that, I mean, that's the last words that you ever want to hear about anybody, but especially your own child, is that there's nothing more that they can do to help her. When uh, the St. Louis Hospital got there, um, what was, what happened next? Um, they actually had, had to bring a physician with them. Um, onto the helicopter um, because she was that critical. And um, so she, you know, of course, went over everything with us, went over, she went in and had done her evaluation and stuff like that. And then she came and spoke with us. And um, Madison was on 14 drips at that time, oh, um, wow. by the time Children's Hospital got there. At that time in 2011 they had only been able to transport 12 drips so they had to get her down to 12 drips um, when they started moving her um, her heart started failing um, at that point up to that point the heart was the only thing that was really working by itself and doing really good you know um, but when they started moving her and started um, you know, trying to switch out the drips and, and all that, that's when they started seeing some heart, you know, issues. Her blood pressure was skyrocketing and stuff like that. Um, I will tell you later down, I mean, much later, like once we were probably on the rehab floor in Children's Hospital, um, a lot of the the team, the air vac team, um, we kept in contact with them because I, they just, they stayed in contact with us. And I do remember um, one of the gentlemen coming and talking to us. And I, um, as a mom, you want to know every moment that you weren't there for. So I kept asking questions like what happened on the helicopter and, and stuff like that. And he did admit to us that, Paper-wise, when they got the report, um, they knew that there was nothing that they could do for her, but they wanted to come in and evaluate just in case. Oh, wow. But they they had no hope of um, really being able to get her transported 
um, onto their bed to take the flight to St. Louis. Um, her vitals were just that bad and stuff. However, he said, what changed our mind, and he goes, not changed our mind, but what we knew gave us that extra, you know, resolve. Yeah. Was that you, when you were, you were in the room when we came in and he said, when we saw your face, he said, we knew we had to do everything for this child because that mom needed her child to go home with her. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it, it took them about, um, they got there at midnight, um, Children's Hospital did, and they were finally able to get her transported to their bed and on the helicopter about 3 a.m. Wow. So it took them about three hours. Um, once she got to Children's Hospital, were they able to do anything different at that hospital to sort of help her out? Yeah, so at Children's Hospital, um, they were able to put her on ECMO, the life support, and um, and that, you know, obviously does the work for the lungs and the heart. So basically, she was doing no work for her. Her body was doing no work at all. It was really um, being all done by machines. And I know you were told more than once, you know, prepare to say goodbye to your daughter. Yeah, our doctors... Um, probably the first 48 to 72 hours, um, definitely the first 48 hours, they, each time that they updated us, and again, like I said, I come from a big family, so my whole family was there too, and they got to a point that they just brought us all into a big conference room, because they were like, we want you to hear it all, you know, all of you at the same time, and they kept, you know, for the first 48 hours, 48 hours they kept saying it is more likely she was going to pass than live you know I don't know you super well <laughs> but I have met you um, I can't imagine that you took that and just went with it I, I imagine that you really wanted to fight for your daughter yeah. so the first time that we were told that I actually was not told um, I actually had went back to seeing her, see her because I hadn't seen her for several hours. And when I went back to the room, I mean, Madison, when she walked into the hospital, she was 93 pounds. When I was looking at her for the first time after several hours, she was almost 150 pounds. Oh my gosh. They had to put that much fluid on her. And so I was really struggling with that because I kept you know, like, this isn't my child, you know? And so the first time, um, doctor said that I actually was not in the room. Um, my husband was my, my parents, well, my dad and my, and my aunt and uncles were, um, my mother was with me and uh, we were actually in the waiting room just because of what I'd seen and, and, the confusion, a lot of right. confusion, a lot of like, what is going on? How can this happen to a healthy child? And um, so I um, went to, went into the waiting room. Um, and actually, I had an uncle that came and sat by me. And, um, and my dad was on the other side of me. And I remember saying to my dad, I'm like, This is an uncle that usually comes in, does a family function, and leaves. So within an hour or two, Mm -hmm. he was there all day long. And I remember turning to my dad saying, this isn't, it's not good. It's not Maddie's outcome. It's not good. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, my uncle Wayne, who that's his name, he, he's not leaving. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad getting up and having to go to the hallway because he was so emotional because like even though I hadn't been told that he had been and he was trying to be strong for me my husband was trying to be strong for me Mm -hmm. and then finally um that evening when the doctor came back in and talked with all of us that was the first time I had heard um it was more unlikely she was going to pass than live but she did make it She did. Um, She was on life support for um, two weeks. Um, She had several setbacks. Um, 
she actually had a hematoma on her left side that was actually moving everything, her diaphragm and everything to, um, I'm sorry, the right side, moving everything to the left side. Um, so they ended up having to call in a surgical team and they had to put chest tubes in while she was on life support. So, um, you know, she just had a lot of up and down things that happened. And, but she did um, come off ECMO after two weeks and then she was intubated and she ended up having to go on dialysis also. So she was on dialysis and intubated for a full five weeks. And then after that, that's when they sort of came or brought her out of sedation and everything. And I could talk to her. When they first brought her out of sedation and you were able to talk to her, what was her reaction to all of this? I mean, did she even have any idea what she had just gone through? So the first thing, she was mad. She was mad at me. She was mad at her mother. And well, of course. I mean, they always get mad right. at mom, right? Exactly. Um, and, and she expressed that um, because, of course, the doctor's like, oh, are you mad at me? And she shook her head no because, of course, she didn't even know who this guy was. Right. And then he goes, are you mad at dad? And she, of course, shook her head no. And then when he said, are you mad at your mom? And, of course, she said yes. And, of course, that was the first time I really had gotten to see her eyes or talk to her and of course that was a mess you know um, I had to turn around and shred shed some tears and then I shook it off and got back in there once she had come out of sedation and she was more aware of what was going on around her how much longer did it take her before she could go home so we were actually um that was five weeks. Um, we were actually at Children's Hospital a total of 93 days. Oh, wow. So she was in uh, the PICU for eight weeks. And then um, then the rest of the time we moved up to the 12th floor, which is the rehab floor. Because honestly, she had to learn how to do everything all over again. Um, I remember the first time she wrote her name, it took her 20 minutes to write Maddie Allen. You know, that's, you know, nine letters, you know, um, she could, she knew brain wise that, you know, what to do, but she couldn't get her brain to get it to her hands. You know, um, she had to learn how to eat again because, um, she struggled with eating, um, she struggled with sleeping every time, she, you know, she didn't want to sleep because she felt like she wasn't going to wake up or if she was, it was going to be months later. So she had to learn how to throw a basketball, something that she's been doing since she was two years old. Um, she had to learn how to balance on steps, you know, cause she didn't know how to walk up and down steps. That's pretty overwhelming for someone who is 12 years old. Right. Like things that she's been doing, you know, all her life, you know, for quite a few years now she's having to relearn how to do all of that again and even just talking you know you could tell like she was having to stop and think like she was thinking about it before she could just let it flow out of her mouth and have a normal conversation with somebody so she got sick I think I'm remembering this right in February correct that is correct February 21st um do you remember when she went back to school so she actually, we got out of um, Children's Hospital May 23rd. Um, so that was right around Memorial Day weekend. And so school was about ready to be over. And I um, didn't let her go back to school until the very last day of school, um, just because they had things that they wanted to present her with like they had made this quilt for her with all these messages on it from the kids you know and stuff and so I it was probably about a week after we were out of the hospital that I did let her go back for that very last day of school but she actually didn't go back until the following year her eighth grade year and how about her long-term prospects? Uh, how is Maddie doing today? What's sort of the long-term effects of this bout with the flu? 
Sure. Um, so Maddie is now 21 years old. Um, she's a senior in college. She actually just finished up her last season of soccer. She was the starting women's goalie. Um, she got a scholarship to play at Hannibal LaGrange University. Um, the to look at her when you saw her, when you see her, you would think that she was a healthy young adult. Um, unfortunately, her insides aren't as good as her outsides. Um, she is uh, she's severely asthmatic. Um, she has a chronic lung disease, which is um, a form of COPD. And she has a chronic cough that she'll have for the rest of her life, um, very prone to pneumonia. Um, we actually just had a bout of pneumonia about two weeks ago. Um, the good part about it is that her body tells her very quickly when things aren't normal. So how she can tell that she's getting sick whether it's a lung infection or something like that, um, her cough will change and it'll become a very productive cough. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and her taste changes too. She like, she can almost taste the infection, which sounds really gross, but she will tell you that she can taste the difference. Um, they do treat her, um, her pulmonologist treats her as a cystic fibrosis patient. Um, and which is, and the reason why is because, you know, cystic fibrosis patients, they have like 13, you know, symptoms or 13. Well, she has nine of them out of the 13. And unfortunately, the only four that she doesn't have are ones that you would be born with. Um, so they do treat her with, um, like a cystic fibrosis. She does vest treatments twice a day, um, now she's at college, so I'm sure she's not doing them as much as she's supposed to. <laughs> um, we know, you know, young, young adults, but um, definitely when she gets sick, she definitely amps up on that. Um, and then she also takes a medication every other month, and it's an um, antibiotic, and it's actually for cystic fibrosis patients. Um, and they, it's a, um, it's called Tobinizin, and it's in a Toby pod that she does, and she does that 28 days on, 28 days off, and has been for five years now, five or six years. I think we're getting ready to hit our sixth year on that one, but it's very, it's worked very well for her. Um, beforehand, she was getting sick. After she'd gotten out of the hospital, she was getting sick quite often. Um, and then once we started doing the, the antibiotic, the Toby antibiotic, um, it actually has helped her greatly. And now we're only seeing maybe, you know, one case of pneumonia versus four or five. Um, and, and she's really, uh, a poster child for the flu not being just the flu. Right. But also, the reason that I really want people to hear Maddie's story and to hear your story, too, a lot of people think that the only bad outcome from the flu is death. Um, but the flu actually can cause permanent damage to someone's life. That is correct. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think I said this in the beginning part of our talk is that I just thought it was the flu. I didn't realize. I mean, yes, I knew older people that got the flu, sometimes they died from the complications and stuff, but not, you didn't hear a lot about young ones, you know, and I believed in, I believe in vaccinations. Madison actually had gotten her flu shot every year, but that year. And the reason why it's because I didn't make it a priority. Right. It's so I, easy to skip at that age. Right. Just to get overwhelmed with how busy their little lives get. Yes. I put it on my to-do list. And unfortunately, I just didn't make it a priority. And every time I got to it, I was like, oh, I don't have time to get her there. You know? And she had, and actually when she went for her um, sports physical, she, she had a cold or something. She had something. And they were like, yeah, let's hold off and give it, you know, let's hold off and wait to give it to her because we had time but the problem was I just never made it you know that priority and right. I think I mean that's the biggest thing I want 
you know, people to understand is that for the rest of my life, I will live with that guilt because I'm her mom. I'm supposed to protect her, mm-hmm. you know, and I know, I mean, I've had people, my, you know, I've went to a therapist and doctors and they're like, but Shelly, you know, it, you know, accidents happen, mistakes happen and stuff. And I'm like, I get that, but not with your child's health. You know, I think though, now that you are president of Families Fighting Flu and I'm doing what I'm doing, that you and I both recognize that there's a lot of shared responsibilities in getting kids vaccinated. And the reason that, you know, teens in particular, middle and high schoolers aren't getting vaccinated has a lot to do with not just parents not making it a priority but you know that that sports physical that was a lost opportunity yes and the the difficulty in getting your kid there you know us not making flu shots available at every school for example we have all sorts of lost opportunities in getting kids their vaccines you yes that is correct and and I will even say, you know, my doctor or her doctor, I apologize, even said, you know, he goes, I always said, hey, you know, Maddie's got to get the flu shot. You know, Maddie needs the flu shot. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, definitely. But he said now he's he doesn't take that as OK. You know, I've said it now. I'm do- done because I've you know, it was my job. I had to say it. Now I can move on. Now she, he's like, no, really it's time for her flu shot. You know, it's now he's more, um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to say forceful, but he is a little bit more demanding. Like, no, it's really important. I truly believe in this. I, you know, give it to my child. And, and now he actually has a, a patient story to, you know, tell others about, which I, I welcome him to tell it every time he can. Um, you know, but I said, and unfortunately, we can't change everybody's mind, but mm-hmm. we just hope to empower them to make, you know, the right, a good informed decision. And for the parents who have good intentions yeah. to really put it way at the top Priority. of that to-do list. Pri- number one. Yeah. Number one. If that's the one thing I could go back and change. And I said, I'll live with the guilt for the rest of my life. But what I've done now is I take that guilt and that's why... I'm so adamant about, you know, vaccinations and, and telling her story and everything, just because I don't want others to have to have a story like ours. Families Fighting Flu has a whole host of stories uh, available on the website. So can you just give us a little elevator pitch about what Families Fighting Flu does? What's unique about Families Fighting Flu is that we have the stories. Um, We have the family members that are, you know, so gracious in telling their stories so that we can get that information out to others. And I think that's the biggest thing is that I could sit here and, and give you all the data. I mean, we could sit here and go over numbers all day long. But what really tugs at a heart at the heart is those personal stories knowing that every mother every other mother is just like me they put it on their to-do list but they just didn't you know they don't make it a priority and um i think that's what's really unique about families fighting flu is just that we're able to tell you know our stories and and really show people that we're just like them we were just like them our COO, Cerise Murata, she actually says it, says it, and I just love when she says it because it's it's truly what we're trying to do is just empower people to make those um, educated, you know, decisions and don't believe all the myths. And each um, one of our board members have either lost their um, loved one or it has a loved one that's been affected by the flu. First of all, Cerise Murata is an amazing, yes. amazing woman. Um, and everyone should hear her son Joey's story. Yes, definitely. Um, but I, I also, whenever I'm talking about families fighting flu, I always just have to tell people that they should look up a little bit about Laura Scott, yes. who was the um, executive director, director and passed away a few years ago from uh, breast cancer. And she was certainly a hero in the vaccine community. And I always want to say her name and just let everyone know that we remember and appreciate everything that Laura did too. 
you know, and I, I actually joined the organization as just a family member when Laura was still alive. And I will tell you, you know, when I came home, I had a lot of, I, I actually suffered, um, from a form of PTSD. Sure. Um, and I didn't understand it. I, you know, when you think about PTSD, you think about, you know, our military people and stuff, you know, because we hear so much about that. Then I realized, no, wait, I did go through a traumatic situation with my daughter and I did suffer. And when I came home, I was responsible for every bit of her health. I mean, she was, she still had a pick line. I, she was on like 12 medications when we came home that I had to wean her off of. I mean, I wanted to keep her in a bubble because I didn't want to ever go back through what we just went through. But when you're looking for resources to try to help you cope with everything, there wasn't anything out there for me uh, or my daughter in reality, you know, there's not a support group at our local hospital for, you know, um, influenza, you know, people that have been affected by influenza. Um, I'm thankful that my therapist or my doctor helped me every four weeks. I would have, you know, meetings with her, but, um, what happened and how I got involved with families fighting flu is I was on um, social media and my aunt had shared the story of Austin Booth and he is one of our our um, members on our website and with our organization and I remember reading this story and I I mean it took me an hour to read a five-minute story but I just was crying the whole time because I was thinking this is my daughter's story but some other mother is writing this and so that is actually when I researched and went into the the website for Families Fighting Flu. And then I reached out to Laura Scott. And I'm going to tell you, she was my lifesaver. Yeah. You know, everybody has a great story about Laura, but she was she truly was my therapist and she was my lifesaver. She gave me a voice. She gave me a home. And I know that sounds weird, but when you're going through all those things and you're confused and and I didn't know there was others like me. With that, <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for joining us, Shelly. Can you tell us where folks can find Families Fighting Flu? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can always, um, our website is familiesfightingflu.org. And Cerise Marotta, and um, we've got some other staff members now. Um, they are always there willing to help. Um, we have a lot of toolkits, um, a lot of educational stuff that, you know, you know, whether you're in a doctor's office, a school, whatever, um, we do have that information there. And again, you can always go onto the website and read about our stories. And if there's anybody that, um, you know, wants to reach out to any of the family members, just uh, definitely let Cerise know and she'll get that set up for you. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us too. Please remember, if you haven't gotten your flu shot, just like me and my 16-year-old, you can't go at 10 p.m., but it's not too late to get your flu shot yeah. as far as the calendar is concerned. Sometimes yeah, get it done now. Get it. I also want to mention that Voices for Vaccines, as the year is coming to the end, Voices for Vaccines supports this podcast and makes it happen, and we can only do that through individual donors. So please consider a gift to Voices for Vaccines at the end of this year at voicesforvaccines.org slash support. Super important to us. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa. Please look for me online at my blog, pedsgeekmd.com, or find me on Facebook or Twitter. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.